Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and it is such a darn pleasure to be here with you today. I just feel like today's guest has, I have caught all of her excitement and joy and vibrancy and texture and verve and wisdom and just zest for life. She is that contagious. Our guest today is Alex Rosenberg Raguto, and she is such a force. I had been following Alex for a while and really stalking her to learn a little bit more about her and gain some intimacy with her before inviting her on the podcast when she started talking about the discipline pleasure axis. And it was at that moment that I knew that I absolutely had to have her on the show. I couldn't even wait. We actually spent hours sending voice notes back and forth before we finally recorded this episode because I was just so excited to get her perspective on discipline. If you listen to my solo episode at the beginning of this year, then you might know that discipline and personal responsibility are two words that I'm really working with this year. Discipline is one that I want to continue to unpack. So, so this is, this is just the beginning, but I want to kind of diverge for just a minute and talk about how discipline is capable of giving us freedom. I've said this before and I'll say it again, but I, I love actually crafting and sitting down and identifying your value system. Because I think that what underlies all the decisions that we make as humans is this sort of core value system. And either you're flying blind and not knowing that you're making decisions on this, or you have identified it and can then become more aligned with it. And one of my biggest values is freedom. Now, this takes many different forms, but today I'm talking about the kind of freedom that is financial freedom, the freedom to feel really good in your body, the freedom to spend your time in a way that is in service to your goals. And when I'm talking about discipline in this regard, I think that discipline is a really powerful giver of freedom. Now, I've been reading a book called Discipline is Destiny by Ryan Holiday, and I'll talk more about this coming up here. But I want to pull this quote from the book. Who can be free when they have lost the freedom to abstain? Mm, that hits for me. Who can be free when they have lost the freedom to abstain? Now, as you'll hear on this episode, Alex and I talk about our 
former substance abuse and drug addictions. This isn't something that I've gone into a lot on the podcast. I've touched on it. But for a time in my mid, my early mid-20s, uh, at a time when the butcher shop was really struggling, I turned to drugs and alcohol as an escape. Now, I quickly realized that that wasn't the direction that I wanted to go and pulled myself back together. It was a huge learning point for me. And I learned a lot of different things. I talk about it some on our relationship episode that I did with my husband. But I also learned about what abstinence could give me. As I consider this through the lens of who I am today, right now in January of 2023, I'm really looking for discipline to give me financial freedom, to confer to me the ability to spend my time in service to my goals, and the freedom to feel my absolute best so that I can continue to have this verve and vigor for life. So, Within this, some of the things that I am abstaining from or cultivating discipline around are things like social media and that doom scroll. I don't want to do any more of that. I want to consume less and create more. I am also looking to continue what has now become a habitual eating for my body in a way that makes it feel its best. I don't even really think about the foods I'm not eating because they don't even matter because the foods I am eating make me feel great. But I'm always looking to continue to cultivate that. I'm also looking to continue to and build a better muscle around spending my time in service to my goals and the discipline that it takes to block my time and make lists and really focus on the work that I want to put out in the world and to find some reciprocity with that work bringing income in as well. And so I just wanted to talk about a little bit about this and, and just how much pleasure I find in freedom. And you'll hear Alex talk about the discipline pleasure axis in this episode, and it is just really not to be missed. So I just wanted to give you that little bit of backstory and kind of give us a chance to all get on the same page. I do not think this is the end at all of my exploration of discipline on the podcast, because I am just really interested in this at this point in time. Now, as usual, I never give a great biography of my guests, and we often just dive right in as Alex and I do, but I really want to give a shout out to this incredible woman's work. One of the things I really love about doing this work is when I get to fully immerse myself in the viewpoint of a guest in my research and due diligence. And I really did this with Alex. And I think that I try to convey this within the episode, and I'm not sure I did all of that great of a job. But when you go to her Instagram page, there is this cohesive nature that really feels like the essence of Alex. It is colorful and joyful, and it has a lot of depth, and it has a lot of meaning and a lot of texture. And it is really reflective of the various thought processes, skills, and wisdom, and joy that she pulls into her life. 
And I hope that her story really resonates with you all and and touches you all in the same way that it did me. I think that she is incredibly articulate of her inner landscape as she traverses and nurtures the landscape around her in Michigan. So it is just such an honor to hop into this episode with Alex. We're going to have a little quick ad here and then we're going to talk to her. Thank you. Can we do a little ad spot? I want to talk about ads for a minute first. And the first thing that I want to say here is that these aren't really sponsorships at all. These are affiliate codes. And I want to do this in the name of transparency. This is part of how I am trying to fund the podcast and it is part of reciprocity. I am bringing you amazing guests and hopefully some conversations that really resonate with you. In return, I am offering an opportunity to support my work by supporting other amazing and regenerative brands. And today's brand is Home of Wool. I am so passionate about surrounding myself with wool in my life. And When I look at the surfaces that I spend the most time on, especially in my bedroom, I really want them to be free of toxins, free of VOCs, free of off-gassing. And that is why I choose Home of Wool for my duvet covers, for my pillow. I just got a fantastic body pillow from them. But that's not all about wool. Wool is incredible because it actually has the ability to lower our heart rate. We evolved in contact with these incredible animal-based textiles. And that is why I choose to continue that. But not only that, wool is breathable. It is great at regulating your temperatures so that you stay warm in the winter and cool in the summer. It is awesome at resisting mold and mildew, which for those of us in more humid climates is a huge key for me. And it is dust mite resistant, it is hypoallergenic, and it is incredibly comfortable. And I mean, that's the most important part, right, when we're talking about sleep in particular, is that we're comfortable so that we can cultivate the best night's sleep possible so that we can go out and do all the things we love and enjoy the next day. Home of Wool is an incredible resource, whether it's for you or your children, to deck out your bedroom, whether it's a mattress, pillows, or various cushions. The best part is everything is ultra customizable. You can get 10% off Home of Wool using the discount code Kate Kavanaugh. That's my name, Kate, K-A-T-E-K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H. If you just go to homeofwool.com and you can shop all of their incredible home goods and get 10% off using the discount code Kate Kavanaugh. Thank you for your support of this podcast. It makes our incredible community here possible. It makes it possible for me to bring on guests like Alex. The podcast is not free to produce, but it is the freedom that I enjoy, as you just heard me talk about, is so much around being able to make this podcast. So a little bit of reciprocity in that. And without further ado, I want to bring you our guest, Alex rosenberg Raguto. We're just going to ease in so it won't even matter because we're talking about salty water. <laughs> it's kind of the best. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's something about 
aliveness is interesting with salty water. We're such big salt eaters. Like we order Redmond's in 25 pound bags. And I think Josh and I go through one in about 10 months and it's just constant salt. Yes. Constant salt. Do you get the kosher or do you get the fine? We get the kosher and then we grind it ourselves. (laughs) Which is so extra because I think their fine is too fine. And I I I like being able to control the crystal size. And so we buy kosher, grind it in our coffee grinder to get it the size that we like. Do you have a salt well? Like, do you feel your salt as you're salting? Exclusively. Exclusively. Like I, when I go to a friend's house or my parents' house and they have like a, a crack kind of salt grinder, I'm, I'm like, how do you know what you're doing? I need to feel it. I need to touch it. And I need to feel the particle size in my fingers. Yes. To, and like when you cook with the same salt over and over again, you just know what that grind, what it feels like. And Yes. Yeah, I'll grind it into my hand and try to, but I like having a mass to pull from. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pull from just the amount. And so I'm always kind of like reaching and digging in my hand when I do that. I like having a, we have a huge crock. It's like a quart size crock. And I reach in there and I pull like little lobster claws full of salt <laughs> to put in things. I don't know how anybody salts anything. Not that way. I don't, I don't either. I almost think that there is maybe they don't even understand how they're salting things in that way, you know, and like a proper seasoning with salt in like that aliveness piece that we were just talking about. It's, it's like this, you could make a lot of conclusions, but I, I feel like that's another disconnect from your food is like, you don't even know what salt is in your food. And salt is like, it's an entire element in itself. How could you not want to feel it and touch it and taste it in that way? Salt is everything passionate about salt, (laughs) really passionate about salt. Have you read Mark Kurlansky's book salt? No, but it's on my husband's bookshelf. We have it and I have not read it. This is such a good one. I did a whole podcast on salt because I too am incredibly passionate about salt and want to know everything about salt. And so there's also James Antonio's The Salt Fix, which is like Mark Kurlansky's is the history of salt and how much it's just shaped geopolitics throughout time. And The Salt Fix is about the health benefits of salt and just how many minerals and how essential it is. And one of the things I find the most interesting is that I think salt really does drive aliveness. If you follow herbivores, they will always lead you to a salt lick. They have to have one. They need one. But as omnivores and carnivores, we get our sodium from blood and from meat because there's so much sodium in those things. And so we don't need a salt lick though. Now in our modern iteration, we have salt and it's this beautiful way of preservation and preserving aliveness, right? Like perpetuating aliveness. And it's just such a, it's such a pleasurable element to me and it's so tactile and just beautiful. So I don't know. It's my salt ramp. (laughs) I agree. And I love it. And if we could get the world to just enjoy, you know, it's crazy to even think like how, how we see that salt drives, I guess some people see that salt drives disease. And, you know, I offer my 96 year old grandfather homemade sauerkraut and he like, won't 
eat it because it's too salty. He thinks it's too salty and he's not, you know, he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't struggle with blood pressure or any of the indications that like maybe salt would trigger. It's just this mental thing of salt bad, right? Like fat bad, salt bad, meat bad. It's like, why, why do we have to chastise all of the best things? It's like all we the best things, live, right? This punitive society where we're just like imprisoning ourselves in this like deprivation place. Yes. <laughs> yes. And of the things that really kind of made us human and salt yeah. is one of the things that I think really shaped what it is to be human and seeking it out and animals love it. And they know exactly how much they need. Like they trust their palate. When you put a salt lick out, you're never concerned that your goats are going to end up with high blood pressure because they just can't stop licking the salt lick. And so I treat myself the same way, right? Like every day I just kind of follow how much salt do I feel like I need? Mm-hmm. Okay. Animal instincts. They're Animal so right. instincts. <laughs> Should we dive in? Should we like yeah. dive into Let's something? Okay. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking a lot before we started this podcast. First of all, and I, I said this beforehand, but I want to say this while we're recording. You're way of speaking and way of looking at the world as witness through your Instagram is so you like it just sings with all of the colors and the words and the organization that is you Alex and like your human form. And it's so beautiful to witness. And I was talking to my husband about how to start this podcast because one of my, one of my least favorite things is when podcasts start out with like, tell me about yourself. But, (laughs) (laughs) but I really want to explore some of your backstory and some of your origin story and where you came from, because I think all of the juicy things that we want to build to in this podcast build off of these sort of childhoods that you and I have been sharing back and forth on Instagram and how discipline came into it and how pleasure came into it and how feeling other came into it. And so I'm wondering if you'd share whatever, whatever feels most aligned about that formative experience before we dive into some of the super juicy things that we've prepared. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd like to start by just saying, you know, I don't think that I had a childhood that was especially unique. I don't think that I had an upbringing that was so different from anybody else's. You know, I I had grown up in a suburban setting in a middle-class family that was really just trying to do their best with their kids. My parents are wonderful parents and we are so close even now. And I just sort of never had, I never had an opportunity to connect to who I was truly. You know, I think that that is something that is so ubiquitous across childhood in public school settings, in suburban settings, urban settings, even rural settings, I think, you know, even in a homeschool model, I think our, our parents kind of press, press what they want us to be upon us from a very young age. And that's very constricting. So I had a, I had a childhood where I felt very constricted. I felt very homeless, even at a, in a very comfortable home where I had my needs, a lot of my needs met. 
And that led me to a place of, you know, what you had mentioned that, that feeling other all the time. I never felt, I never felt like I could be myself because when I was myself, it was, I was met with a lot of rejection. I was met with a lot of sternness of why being myself was wrong or not appropriate. You know, I'm goofy. I was just like this goofy kid and I wanted to have fun and laugh and smile and be silly. And like, teachers don't like that in a school setting. You know? they, like, don't. they really don't. And I wanted to be silly and I still just want to be silly all the time. I just, I think that that is, that's such a, a pillar of who I am is just like, goofy. And so, you know, that was met when I was goofy and I was myself that was met with like, no, that's wrong. No, that's bad. Like be quiet, sit up straight, like pay attention. And I couldn't. And that led to, you know, and, and maybe we can touch upon this later, just like this childhood of, you know, I felt all this constriction, this social constriction. And then that was layered with, personality constriction via, via medication and always, and always being met with, okay, Alex is just being herself, but like that doesn't work in these settings, in these like rigorous school settings in, in settings, you know, where you have to do extracurriculars and your parents want you to do, you know, my, my family wanted me to explore extracurriculars, which is such a blessing, you know, but like, that's not what I wanted to do. And so it was just medicate her, which is horribly sad. And I, again, horribly ununique, you know, and I know that we talked about this. It, yeah. You know. I think it was becoming less and less unique as you and I were children. And I think today it is bordering on ubiquitous that we medicate children to fit inside of a, a box and whether that's a personality or a behavior or a view of the world box, it's constricting. And I, I, I too was heavily medicated as a child because I didn't fit in because I was too morose and too, <laughs> like it was a very morose child and, and very much a deep thinker. And, you know, for me, it was that I didn't fit in socially, right. That I didn't know how to interact with these other kids and I didn't, I didn't fit. I was a little bit other. And so these medications try to box you in and it, I know that my experience of it has been that it really boxed my brain in initially that I, I didn't want to access who I was because who I was, was wrong or broken. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, when you have, when you have professionals and in institutional settings who are far older than you, as you're this little girl gazing up at them, you know, and being, being picked apart and then prescribed this pill it's just, it's so, it puts you in that box and then it makes you put you in that box, right? Yes. You know, I remember going to therapy and not even wanting to be honest with my therapist because I didn't want the consequences of that. Yes. I didn't. Yes. I didn't. Oh, I remember know, that feeling. You know, like, <laughs> yes. oh, and what a, what a shame because, you know, I know that there are, I just want to also say that medication isn't always wrong and always bad. And I think that, that people need to come to those decisions, you know, themselves and with the help that they choose. And I can't imagine being a parent and 
seeing my child suffering and just knowing like, I want to help them and I don't know how, you know? So like, I really do. I really feel for parents and I work with kids all the time. Every day I'm working with kids and like, I know that there's, I could be working with myself, you know? And so it just like that empathy and compassion that I have for kids who are going through that, who might end up, you know, like, and I, I say this not to like sound better or worse than anyone. I don't, I don't take medication now. And like, I'm very, very grateful because I was able to grapple with all of that and remove myself from that environment that I didn't fit into and find the one in which I did and be able to excel and thrive in it and feel confident and comfortable in myself. And, you know, I was diagnosed as bipolar as like a 10 year old and put on Zoloft and I was pulling out my hair in this anxiety and, I don't have to do that anymore because I'm not in that environment. And, and I, I wonder what things would have looked like if that environment would have been an option for me. So, you know, to go back to that origin story, none of what I'm doing right now was even presented as an option for me. I didn't know that food came from the earth you know, like food was spray butter (laughs) and I stood in front of the fridge with the fridge open and I'd spray it in my mouth, you know, like I loved, and that's where my salt lake breath was. (laughs) It just wasn't an option. So, you know, I didn't even find agriculture or gardening or, or going outside, you know, and, and being connected. I, I take that back. I I always did love being outside and I would, I, you know, me and my sister would like dig little mud puddles and catch frogs. And we were always outside and I always knew that I did enjoy that, but I didn't see that. That was like recreation in the recreation sense. You know, it was, yes, I was recreating Mm -hmm. some sort of joy and that was for playtime. That was strictly playtime. That was not, that was not lifestyle. That was not career. That was not therapeutic. It was just recreating something, which I later found, you know, like the, 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 I'm starting to think future, you know, when I, when I would start to recreate by using recreational drugs, right? Like what was I recreating? And I was recreating that little sliver of comfort and joy and a world of possibility with drug use later. That is a fascinating tie together to look at recreate as recreate and that it's often, often in our recreation, we are, it is a facsimile of the actual thing that we would be doing in the same way that, and I grew up too in a suburban home, that backyard is a recreation of what it means to be out in a sort of wild natural space. And then, and we share this too, to seek again, a recreation through substances of a world where I I know for me, a lot of it was a world where I was comfortable, like a world where I was outgoing or things felt easier and more accessible and bigger. And they didn't feel so loud in that space to me. 
I think that's a, that's a really beautiful connection to make the ways in which we're recreating and in our recreational usage. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like recreating that backyard or recreating in that backyard again is that same constriction, right? Like you can't go, you're not really supposed to like go over the property line. You really shouldn't be so loud because the neighbors might be mad and hell, you know, like when you're, if you're a person who lives in an HOA, maybe you can't even plant in your yard what you'd like to plant because you know, that that's not, that's not acceptable. It's outside um, the box. It's outside, it's a little we're, outside the box. We're confined right. again. Right. You're confined. Let me take a stab at this because I think, I think so much of what leads us into a place of seeking to be outside of ourselves through drugs is so much of what you talked about before, which is we have this environment and our relationship to it. And like you as a little kid, I didn't know what, I didn't know that this, that farm life, that living out in the country, that being, you know, a farmer was even a possible career path. And I think that when we're in an environment that feels out of sync, there is this desire to get out of it in any way possible. And I don't know if that was true for you in what you were, what you were recreating with drugs, but I know that for me, I was trying to recreate an environment that felt good during a time in my life that felt very bad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I start to sort of examine my experiences in, in grade school, I was never good at anything. And I knew that, I mean, you know, I was, I was a good writer and I felt, you know, confident with, with science class, but when it came to extracurriculars and like that very constrictive box of things that we have to choose from, to be good at as children, one, none of those aligned with me. I didn't, I didn't want to do those things. And two, when I did do those things, I wasn't good. And so the first time I got high, I was good at it. You know, I was like, I can do this. And suddenly like people aren't making fun of me anymore because I'm shocking. You know, I'm, I'm a 13 or 14 year old girl who's getting high with older kids. And all of a sudden, like, I'm not, I'm not being made fun of. I'm, I'm a shocking, I'm a shocking kid who's, who's, you know, getting high with the best of the high school kids. And like, I loved that. It was the first time I had ever felt accepted by my peers was when, was when I was getting high with them. And that was an illusion of acceptance. You know, I didn't know whether or not they accepted me. We were all drunk or high or, you know, huffing some weird thing in so-and-so's garage from their dad's shop. You know, like the focus wasn't necessarily on me and my performance anymore. It was just everybody is together and everybody's trying to, to escape. And in the moment that I got high and the, in like the first time, and I think any addict would tell you this is like this comfortable click happened where I was like, ah, I can relax. Like I can, I can step outside of myself in a way where I'm not picking myself apart. I'm not being picked apart and I can just let go. And how that was so pervasive through the several years of my drug addiction and alcohol addiction is I was never, I never found myself like 
physically addicted to one drug or another, you know, it was a physical addiction to this feeling of just escaping myself and escaping my environment and going away in one way or another. And it didn't matter, you know, like people ask in like AA or NA meetings, like, Oh, what was your drug of choice? And like, I did not have one. I just wanted to be away. I didn't want to deal with anything. I didn't want to deal with myself and I wanted to be away and I wanted it to be quiet. And that's what I achieved with drug use. And I think when I, you know, later down the line and we can get there, but like the first time I stepped on a farm, I felt the exact same thing that like, Oh, wait a second. This is it. This is what I was looking for. This is good. You know, like I'm home in a way that I was never able to achieve through drug use because drug use, you're mentally somewhere else, but you're still in your same horrible environment usually. And sometimes, you know, there's lots of people in lots of situations where maybe they fall victim to drug abuse in a, in a good environment too. That was sort of my case, right? Like I, I, for the most part, I was safe and I was cared for and I had people who were concerned and looking out for me because I was a child or a young adult, but yeah, it, it's interesting when I, when I parallel those two of like the first time I got high and the first time I got to a farm and that feeling being exactly the same one being so, so derived from sadness and, and bleakness and, and a desire to escape and one being derived from like a desire to connect and to not have to escape anymore. It's interesting to pose that as antithetical, right? That you have the desire to escape and the desire to connect, and they're sort of born out of the same place. And I wonder a lot, and I don't think there's, I don't think there's any answer for this, but I wonder a lot if farming or being out in nature had been presented to me as a child, as an option, as a career path, as another kid who wasn't good at anything, right? Like how would that have changed my trajectory as, because I have a very similar experience where there was so much seeking to escape and suddenly that feeling of, Oh, I can, I can connect and I can, I know how to connect to this. Like I'm good at connecting to this, to the land, to the trees, to the soil. It makes sense to me in the same way that escaping also made sense to me, right? It made sense. And it is a coming home. Absolutely. I think it's a coming home, especially for people. And, you know, I, I think the more, the more farm environments that I've been exposed to and the more farm crews and, and farmers that I get to work with, I think a lot of us have this story of never, never feeling home until you're presented with an opportunity to really connect with land and to be in a service position with land, you know, not just there's, there's a really, a really beautiful thing that happens when you are an observer on land, right? Like going on a hike and walking, and that is so therapeutic and so good for us. But I think the real magic happens when we take a service position on land and we start taking those observations and putting maybe some action steps and and integrating with land in a way where we're not just observers or passerbys or, you know, walkers or bird watchers, but we're like, 
we're feeding the birds and we're planting things that feed the birds. And we are, you know, building relationships with animals and plants that we eat. And, oh my God, how amazing that like that feedback loop and, and the good that comes from that, right. There's like all these different paradigms within farming where, you know, there's very extractive versions of farming. So I don't want to just like blanket all farming as the same. Um, but when you take, when you take a role that's really rooted in service and land, I think that that kind of homecoming, it's like, you come to the ar- the land with arms wide open and then suddenly the land is opening up its arms to you. And it's just this like big cuddle puddle fest of like, okay, we can do this together. We can be in relationship together. And like, you are welcome home. And I've never felt that before until farming, you know, it's a really good thing to feel. <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredible thing to feel. I think, especially when you have been searching and to feel welcomed into reciprocity, right? Where you're receiving and you're also giving, I think gives you a sense of, and I love that you said this, a sense of service, a sense of purpose, and a sense of being in place. And this is something that you talk so much about. And I love this, like what it is to just be in this place, to work with this place, to gather and forage and care for a place and even be medicated by a place in a lot of, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting, you know, when I first started, um, I left my home, I left Michigan where I, where I live and I moved out West when I was 17. Um, and I had to, you know, do my whole drug infused journey of exploration out there. And, you know, when that eventually led me to, I, I feel like I have to back up before, yeah, no, before no, no. I go do into, into do place. I was always really scared. I've lived in a couple places out West and I didn't come back home until my mid twenties, uh, after I had left in my, in my mid teens. And I was really scared to come back to the place where I lived. Oh, it's I can only imagine. <laughs> you yeah. know, first of all, you have to hold up that mirror to yourself and be like, Oh, I did this here. And all that, that all comes back. If, if you're a person who has left your home and you come back and maybe you left your home, not on good terms, you know, there's, there's a level of, um, you have to face it. And, and I was always really, really scared to do that. I didn't want to see the people I knew. It was hard to be around my family. It was, I couldn't go on the streets where I used to hang out. You know, it was scary to go back there. It brought up a lot. So I was really afraid to come back to the place that I'm from. And I think I needed to take some time away and just discover what does living in place and what does, what does feeling at home in a place feel like before I could actually go back to the place that was my home. And I had to really reckon with that. And I made a really conscious decision when I moved back to this area, you know, eight or nine years later, or however many years later it was that I was going to make right with the place, you know, that I, that I did so much wrong and with the people that I did so much wrong too. And I don't think that I would be able to have the relationship with where the place where I live in, in the ecosystem that holds me. If I didn't reckon with all of those things first, I think it would make it feel perhaps extractive or 
false. If you've ever like, uh, maybe you've had an experience where something weird happened with a friend or a family member and it hasn't been addressed and you sweep it under the rug, but it's always there. You know, you can't really have that honest, full on honest conversation with that person. And there's just always this like weird thing lingering. I felt like if I didn't really address all of those things, I couldn't come home and I couldn't come home in the right way. And I did come home and it was really difficult, but I threw myself first into, into service right through farming. And that's, that's how I decided, you know, I can't find, I can't pinpoint every single person's car that I broke into and stole their Garmin and sold it online for like, I can't find all of those people and reckon with them. I don't know if they would even want to talk to me or how, you know, if they even exist, where are they? But I can, I can approach my daily activities of finding provisions to eat. I can approach my daily activities of the way in which I want to grow and harvest food and how I impact people in a different way. And so I think for me, starting there really opened up this portal into what does living in place mean and feel and look like and taste like for me. Because it's not just being able to identify every single plant, right? Or like know the Latin name of this tree or know, you know, when this bird comes home. It's so much more than that. It's really relationship-based as well. And and I had to do that first. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that before we dove I in. I love that. I love that. And sometimes I think, sometimes I think we have to leave to come home. Like I think sometimes to love a place, we have to leave a place. And I think sometimes to love ourselves, right? We have to kind of go on this journey. I don't want to say leave ourselves, but kind of, and come back home to ourselves. Because I imagine as much as there was this desire to to make amends with this place, that there was also an amends that you had to make with yourself to be in this place. Because I think that home is, yes, our environment outside of ourselves, but it is also the home that we make within ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I just wonder if that, how that homecoming was layered. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I was gone and I, I went to, I went to Arizona for a while and I didn't start farming right away. But once I did start farming, I did some traveling and I went to other farms and I moved to Washington for a year and I came back to Arizona and I, I feel so lucky that I landed in the place that I did when I went back to Tucson. I was at a really special farm, Bean Tree Farm, which was out in Marana. If you're familiar, I know you lived in Arizona, but Marana is, you know, 45 minutes north of Tucson and there's some, some foothills there and nestled right in there was, um, bean tree farm where I met my mentor, Barbara Rose, who is to this day, the most incredible and special woman I've ever had the opportunity to work for and learn from. And there was this whole healing crisis that happened while I was there. I was so physically unwell and, you know, I learned how to farm, but I didn't necessarily like learn how to take care of myself right away. And when you're, when you're a drug user from a very young age, you sort of skip 
a lot of, a lot of that maturing mental maturing. I never, I just didn't know how to take care of myself before, right before I started farming, you know, I was eating fast food every day and I was clinically obese. I had a lot of different ailments that for me, I found were very, very intertwined with the food that I was eating. And I'm lucky for that because how amazing to be able to just eat something different and change your whole life. And so I feel very, very lucky. And when I was at Bean Tree Farm, I really feel for the first time I learned how to take care of myself. And I think, I think, you know, by dissecting, I was a vegetarian at this time. And this is like, <laughs> this is the juicy stuff, right? So, you know, I was, a, I was a vegetarian and I thought I was doing everything right. And, you know, that was like part of my whole, like first awakening around food was, oh my God, I can't believe that eating meat means eating McDonald's and Jack in the box. So I'm just going to stop eating meat and like, I'm good. Right. <laughs> I still was not, I still was not good. So I feel really lucky that I was able to meet Barbara Rose, my mentor who really helped me. She almost stood in as a, as a grandmother or a mother figure for me to, to reteach me how to care for me, which was phenomenally generous of her. You know, she, she was a woman I was working for and that was not, that didn't have to be her role. Uh, but we had a kinship and, and she took that role on, I think really happily. And so I, I think my experience there and like my growing up there really prepared me in a way in the ways that I addressed, you know, my own health, personal health, mental health, physical health, spiritual health really prepared me to come home and to come home in a healthy way, you know, where I, where I felt there's a lot of shame that's wrapped up with, with being overweight and being obese. And, you know, I fully lived that shame every single day. I mean, it got to a point where I didn't even think I could farm anymore because I was just in so much physical pain and I didn't want to be seen, you know, I didn't want anybody to see me because I was unhappy with what I saw. And if I wasn't able to address all of that in the place that I did in this like very special container that was Bean Tree Farm, I don't think I would have been able to come home in the same context. I would have come home and I think I would have, my mind wouldn't have been right. One, because it was completely undernourished. You know, I was eating bread as a snack every single day, all day long, just like bag of bread. That's like what I ate as a vegetarian was just bags of bread and <laughs> vegetables, maybe some Swiss chard, which I don't even like Swiss chard anymore as, as an omnivore. It's that's like, ugh. And it's not, it's anyway, we can get into chard later, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, without, without addressing, I think that there's a certain level of emotional maturity that it takes to address your nutrition and to address your physical health. And that only comes from you. You cannot, no, nobody else can lead you to that. And if I wasn't able to have that opportunity there where I couldn't move, I was laid out on my back for a long, long time. Couldn't couldn't bend over to harvest anything. You know, it was just so bad Then I would not have been able to come home in any sort of healthy way. There really was a coming home to yourself. Like there really was this like full journey of coming full circle and maybe being ready for the first time to actually be in place and to experience that groundedness that comes with dropping into a place and dropping into a place in yourself 
Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't know some of the pieces of your story in that way. And I think it's incredible that you're here and that you're farming and that you're just (laughs) so full of light and joy that it just, just radiates, just radiates out of you. So I want to talk about connecting to place too, though, that you get here, you come home in a lot of different ways and start to be in service and to really connect and to find home and to maybe find some purpose too. And also to build, and I want to bring this in here too. I think you start to maybe build some skills. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, going back to what I said about, about being in place, knowing it's not just to me, at least it's not just the birds that are here or the trees that are here in the Latin names of the things that are here. It's there's this rhythm that you start to learn about the movement of the place. I think that a place has a different gravity at a different time. You know, like to me, winter feels like winter feels like, I don't know the first thing that just popped into my head. I don't know why is, is the word iron, you know, this like slow moving, this like heavy metallic sort of, and I don't know, you know, I know that there's like different elements for different times. I don't know them, but to me, (laughs) metal or iron, just like this heavy time of winter and this like light and feathery time of spring and this, this hot and humid time of, of summer and just learning, learning what it feels like to navigate your own body within those times and, you know, mirrored against, okay, these, these are the things that are happening right now. And like, this is how I can engage with them. And it's so hard to describe, but all of a sudden there is no, or there's less of a boundary between you and the place that you live. And it's all just one homogenous flowing thing. And it's really cool, you know, and I, we had talked a little bit about traveling, right? And like when you go and you travel somewhere else in this, this total, like almost like a personality shift that happens within you in a different environment and like how you can really adapt to another place in such a quick time. I think, I think just being able to dissolve the boundary between you and the land and respond in a way in which your skills start to reflect the ways that you interact with that place. It's all like wrapped up in one thing, you know? Yes. Yes. And I have to ask you here, as you talk about that relationship being one where that boundary is dissolving between you and the land and in childhood feeling so constricted and boundaried. And I think that's a really interesting contrast to have that suddenly dissolve through reciprocity and through exploration and through feeling of a rhythm and the perfect words to describe all those spaces. You said you couldn't find the words, but you found the perfect (laughs) words. I could feel them in my body. Yeah. Yeah. And like, gosh, I feel, you know, I think that a lot of people talk about talk about these practices as ritual. And I think that's really beautiful to pair the word ritual with, with that dissolving of the boundaries and maybe the actions that you take to enter, you know, to integrate yourself into the land. And I just want to offer that ritual doesn't necessarily have to, I was thinking about this a lot over the past few days and, and how to start wording it. And ritual doesn't have to look like 
anything that you've ever heard, right? Like I think, I think when we start thinking about what does a ritual look like to me, I instantly think, okay, altar cloth and like talismans and maybe some (laughs) sort of incense. And like, that is so, that is one, not accessible Two, you can't just like turn on a dime and like whip out the altar cloth and like the, the whatever it's to me, a ritual can just be It can be just this full understanding of, wow, that boundary between me and this place is gone right now. And like, what can I do really intentionally to like bring that home? And that could just be like going out to harvest some tomatoes from the garden and bring them into your kitchen and artfully put them out on your kitchen table. That's, that's what a ritual would be for me. And I just think that that is so much more inviting Um, and I think that that's so much more like an every person's experience of what being in place is. It's not, it doesn't have to be this fanciful set up sort of premeditated ritual, if that makes sense. Oh, I think it makes all the sense in the world. And you really described something that I think I was looking, I needed to hear that. And as somebody who doesn't partake in a lot of rituals, as you explained them, I do partake in the rituals that you talked about, that act of just going out and harvesting. I'm thinking about ramps because I'm closest to ramp season in my mind, going out and harvesting some ramps and coming back home and rinsing them and putting them in a skillet with some some ghee and letting them melt down and smelling that like that to allow that to be a ritual, to get rid of the social idea, the sort of social and what I call it like this hoity idea of ritual and to just let it be the everyday. Yeah. And within that, you know, you have your holy water that you've rinsed your ramps in and you have that handful of holy earth that is the ramps and you're, you know, invoking the fire in your skillet. What more of a holy experience could you really, really ask for? It almost makes the other seem unreal or it just, it doesn't have the same weight to me as, as that holy, holy feeling of, of preparing yourself a meal that you gathered with so much intention and all the boundaries fall away. I don't even know what to say because I love that so much. (laughs) And, and it does. And here's something that has all the elements that we, that we try to put on. I don't know. It's, it comes back to that recreation idea. Like in these altar style rituals, are we just recreating? Is it like a recreational ritual when sometimes it is just the most simple connected things that we do that are, that are that true thing that is easy for us to connect with. Yeah. I just, I just love that so much. (laughs) You know, I have to say, I think a lot of people, so the context in which my work takes place right now is in Jewish agrarianism. So, so I direct a Jewish farm and a Jewish farming program, and we teach, you know, children in our community uh, all about why it is that farming is the absolute most Jewish thing you can do. And so I have sort of an earth-based lens to Judaism and, 
And when I think about ritual in Judaism, and this might not be, this might not land well with every Jewish person who listens to this, if there are any out there. Um, but you know, Jewish people packed up, we were removed from our land, right? Time and time and time again, over thousands and thousands of years, we were just we're the wandering Jews. We were always looking for a place so we could never settle in and be that place-based people, right? We were just expelled always. And so we had to pack up. We were a tribal people, you know, Jewish people were a tribal people and we had to pack up our entire life way into something that could be moved from place to place. And that is now called religion. And really all the to me in the way that I practice my Judaism and that religious thing is, is all of those rituals were just lifestyles that were packed up and able to move across countries and borders and seas. And, and these rituals that we partake in now that have tools and talismans, like that was just life. And I think that when I compared the two things, you know, the, the ghee and the ramps and a hot skillet and, you know, some of the Jewish rituals we partake in, it's all the same thing. It is just a really, really special moment that we have cultivated that is important to us that we get to package up and keep with us wherever we go. And I know that that's not how, you know, a certain rabbi might explain, you know, what we're up to as Jews, but I think that that context really, it drives it home for me, right? When I think about, you know, God and everything that's holy. It's just, it's all, they're all tools to feel this dissolved boundary between self and everything else. I'm just a little, I'm a little speechless at your words. They're just so beautiful. And I, I, I feel to dive in would be to take away from how true that feels in, in my bones, if that makes sense. Like there's just so much truth there and it, it feels true. And I think it connects us, right? Like it connects us back to ourselves, back to God, back to, back to earth, back to our environment, back to our communities. Yeah. Back to each other. Back to each other. And I can't imagine any, any, any act that brings us closer to those things to be ritual and to be holy because it is an act of connection is just one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever heard. And so (laughs) I'm just delighted to listen to your, your perspective of it. Thank you. Thank you. I want to tease out Um, oh, well, I think first I want to tease out all of the things that you have sort of brought into this, all of these skills as you have become gatherer and forager and butcher and woven. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm nodding yes to that, that, that iffy handshake. Weaving all these skills together with cooking and preparing in the kitchen, when I think about where I initially found you, so I initially found you, somebody sent me your page and said, I want to hear a conversation between you and Alex. And I like to stalk people for a while so I can kind of gain this false sense of social media intimacy with them <laughs> before, before diving into conversation. And every photo was just this beautiful kitchen creation or this foraged mushroom or this enticing piece of meat. And (laughs) 
I'm curious how you began to cultivate these skills and put them all together in the kitchen. Because I think one of the most beautiful things that I see you do is create, we've talked some about this, these layers inside of your kitchen of season and of ingredient and time and the different skills that it took to put them all together. Yeah. Um, I mean, I go back to my mentor, Barbara, and being in her kitchen as a freshly not vegetarian person anymore and just like holding this freshly slaughtered chicken and being like, what the hell do I do here? You know, first of all, what have I done? Oh my goodness. And second, what do I do? And, and watching this woman. So Barbara, my mentor, she is at this, she's 70. Um, so when we were working together, she was in her early sixties and, and watching her pour tea, morning breakfast tea into a curry and watching her then take the tea grounds and making this like a dye to dye paint and just seeing somebody who is so uninhibited and unconcerned with rules in cooking was just this like mind blowing place for me to restart my cooking journey and my journey in the kitchen. I think a lot of people, when they want to take cooking seriously and learn, you know, skills and techniques, there's so many rules that we're, that we're confronted with. And that is valuable in some situations. Certainly, you know, if you want to be a professional cook and you need to learn certain skills to get you into a kitchen, but if you're just a home cook trying to make good nourishing food for yourself, kind of putting those, those rules in the back seat and like pouring the black tea into your curry, because maybe that makes sense or, you know, putting whatever it is together, because that's what is calling to you in that moment. It could taste awful, but it could taste really good. And you're never going to know that until you try. So I think for me, learning these skills, especially butchery, and I'm very hesitant to call myself a butcher because I am just a girl in the backyard with a knife (laughs) and a carcass. Makes you a butcher. Making me a butcher. Okay. Makes you a butcher. (laughs) You know, just getting out of my own way and, and trying to forget about rules and going forward. And, you know, I think there's, there's sort of this notion that like what grows together goes together. And I know that that's like so hokey, but it's so true. You know, like the ramps taste really good with the dandelion greens because they're pungent. One is pungent and one is bitter. And like, Oh my God, suddenly they make sense because I just have the dregs of like my maple sap here and I could like sweeten it in some way. And like, it's all this like, it's almost like the seasons are telling us what to do. And then we, the like awful, awfully complicator, complicated people that we are like impose all these rules. And like these rules happen to be like from a lot of the times it's French cookery, you know, that dictates like what's okay and what's not okay in food. I don't have, I don't have a, a, a French I, maybe I have a couple French cooking books in in my house because my husband went to culinary school and he had to buy them. Um, but I think just, and this I think goes for any skill is just getting out of your own way and saying, I'm going to learn how to do this thing, whether I follow the rules or not, and I could fail and it could be gross and end up in the compost bin. 
but I'm going to try it anyways, is the most powerful thing. It's really a gift to not take yourself so seriously. One, oh, yeah. to not, you know, and just like oh, be yeah. that goofy person in the kitchen or, you know, in any other scenario when, when it comes to skill building. I think too, I talk a lot about this as, as a butcher and somebody who has worked as a chef, though I'm not classically trained. There is a lot to be said for losing this idea that everything is so precious, including our own, our own sort of egos and the way that we identify. And I think sometimes people get into the kitchen, especially around meat. As a butcher, I've noticed that we, and meat is precious and I don't want to downplay that. And, and it can be expensive and all of these things, but when you let go of the preciousness of everything and you just experiment and accept failures and kind of adapt to them, what I tell people with meat is the worst that can happen is that you overcook it and then it just needs more sauce. Like, <laughs> and you might come up with something that you never anticipated because of the failure, the quote unquote failure that just happened. But when you let go, I think there's so much more joy in that space when we let ourselves. And I honestly, this is just coming back to that space. When you let go of those, that box and those boundaries and you just let yourself be one with the kitchen and the ingredients and your own whimsy. Absolutely. And whimsy. I'm so glad you said whimsy because it, it just conjures this image of, you know, there's, there's two images that I see when I think about somebody who cooks and one person is, you know, very upright and wearing this like white chef's hat and they're, they're chopping really fast. And every single thing is the exact same size and they're quick and they're speedy and like, they're not that happy. And then there's, on the other hand, there's whimsy, right? And there's somebody who's taking their time and they're trying something new and they're smiling and maybe there's like music playing and their friends are around them. And it's just an entirely different thing to, to just want to feed yourself well and eat well. And when you like compare that to the other, the other version of this like rigid regimented or like that's that there's no room for that in my kitchen. There really isn't. It's, it's the, no. And I want it's, to enjoy it yeah, because this is, this is feeding me because this is nourishing me because this is part of my ritual, my practice, my reverence for the land. I want to be in a state of, I am enjoying doing this. I'm enjoying nourishing my body, my family and giving myself this gift and utilizing this gift from the land and all of those different layers that can't be regimented, can't follow a recipe either. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. I think the only time I can follow a recipe or that I want to follow a recipe is, is for baking, especially as someone who's gluten-free. It's just like a whole, I'm so glad there's people who test gluten-free recipes oh with all these flowers. Yes. I couldn't, I could not mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. developing mm -hmm. gluten-free recipes no. every day. I mean, that's a lot. It's and, a lot. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this with yourself, but at least for me, if I'm, if I'm cooking to bring something to a potluck or a family dinner or somebody's coming over for dinner, it's never as good as when I'm just cooking for us 
And I think that's because of all of that pressure, right? This like performance pressure of like, oh, like it has to be perfect and amazing and the perfect amount of salt and the perfect amount of this. And I just blow it every single time. And I'm like, oh my God, this is too salty. I knew it would be. I love that you said this because I think it was four or five years ago, my husband and I, whenever people came over, we would put on a production and we would cook these really extravagant meals because we're both, you know, we've both been cooking for a really long time. We decided a couple of years ago that we weren't really having people over because it felt so it felt so fraught. It felt like such a production. It was too much energy spent on it. And we were like, when we have people over, we're just going to cook them whatever we would have eaten for dinner that night. And that's when people started telling us that this is the best meal I have ever had. This is so delicious. What did you do? And it was, so it was when we dropped all the pretense, when we dropped all the, the recreating and just allowed this thing to be what it was and just fed people what we eat. And it changed people's perception of it. Yeah. And isn't it special to be welcomed into somebody's home and eat a plate or a bowl of exactly what they would serve in their home. It's not this, you know, I never go to a friend's house or to my family's house or to a family dinner, whatever, expecting, expecting anything, but especially expecting this like elaborate situation, unless that's, you know, we were going to plan to do that together. And it's just such a gift to be welcomed into somebody's nest and to eat what they eat. It's so special. And that can't be recreated. You know, it really can't because it's so uniquely your and your family's own thing that you're, that you're generously sharing with somebody else. And that to me is so much more special than like, here's this six course meal of, you know, we've never even made this before. Why would we? Why do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's intimate. It's intimate to share the food that you aren't fussing over because that is, that is your food. Like that is the authentic expression of you in your food, that food that you eat every day. And it is special because it is so infused with what brings you joy because they're those meals that you repeat all the time. They're the ones that give you joy and nourishment and are a sense of not just the place that you're in, but sort of who you are as a place. Yeah. It dissolves that boundary, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's all of it together. Yeah. It's dissolving the boundary again. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah. <laughs> this podcast has a theme. Yes. <laughs> dissolving boundaries. Yes. Yeah. I want to talk about another boundary that we dissolve. And I want to talk about dissolving the boundary of time when we preserve things and how that layer comes into a kitchen full that has a larder full of these little bits of spring and these, you know, remnants of summer and, you know, little dehydrated bits of fall that make their way onto plates and into beverages and wherever they are throughout the year to nourish us and to be, to be nourished by a place throughout time and to have that extra layer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that looks different in everybody's home and in our home, there's definitely, it's interesting. I think that 
when we think about layers, I'm seeing a layer just in my mind's eye right now. I see a landscape and I see a couple different clocks all kind of uh, fixed onto each other, right? There's like the farm season clock and all of the tasks that you need to do in the day in that moment, in that time to like set you up for success for the farm season every single day. And then there's the season of the forest and the season of the wildlands and the places where we gather and what, you know, what we observe is ready to be harvested and worked with. And then on top of that, there's so many clocks and so much time is, is this layer of preservation and how do we take, so I, I live in Michigan in the very, it's cold and nothing grows in the winter time. So how do I take this very short, seemingly short and hot, fast moment where there is so much abundance and so much to do and carve out these times for me to put by for later. I feel it's my responsibility to make sure that I have enough to eat in the winter time and to make sure that, you know, those who eat food from our farm have enough to eat for the winter time. And it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. I definitely don't think it needs to be a hundred percent. And I don't try to make it a hundred percent, but what can I do that I at least have, you know, a little bit or, or the essence of, or the energy of when I don't have the opportunity to go out and do that thing that brings me joy, which is, which is farming and foraging and cooking and, you know, all of that. So we preserve a lot of food in our house. We have, it sort of evolves every year. You know, last year I really wanted to get rid of this idea in my head that like canning is drudgery and misery. Cause for a long time, I thought it was, um, can I pull a quote can from you? Can I pull yes. a quote from you? Yeah, because yeah. I think that this is so important <laughs> for us. Our preservation strategy gets simpler every year. We focus on quality, volume, practicality, and simplicity rather than fussy, frilly, all consuming, maybe items gone are the days of jars of pickled fennel, agridolce by the dozen quarts of floral syrups, half pints of every flavor, chutney and jam. Those things are nice to have around and we make them here and there in small batches, but our time is precious. And the whole point for us is to seriously eat and subsist from our efforts. I loved this because again, I'm not a very fussy person and it takes that fussiness and that preciousness that I tend to feel towards preservation and an act canning that maybe isn't my favorite task. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And like, you know, we used to do all of that fussy stuff and it, I really just thought to myself, why, you know, is anybody subsisting off of fennel pickles? No. Like, why am I putting all of my attention on fennel pickles? One, I don't like fennel that much. Why am I pickling it? Two, I don't even eat that many pickles. Why am I making so many pickles? And of fennel, you know, it's really this like introspective moment that you have to have to be like, okay, there's a lot on the table right now. What am I going to decide to do that has the most impact? So does 50 jars of tomato sauce hit a little bit harder in our house than, you know, a dozen different jams? I don't eat jam. Why am I making jam? You know, and I was making jam because I never sat down to really strategize and check in with myself and inventory. What do we, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because it makes it like makes me feel something 
Or am I doing this because I want to eat and I'm doing this because I want to eat. So we make a lot of tomato sauce. We make, you know, a lot of ferments. We eat a lot of fermented vegetables. And honestly, the more I used to have a freezer that was just dedicated to fruit. I don't eat that much fruit in the winter time. My body, I run pretty cold and fruit is very cooling. And that's just not something that I want a lot of times in the winter time. So we, we put more meat in our freezer because that's like, that's where the calories are. That's where the protein is. And I need to eat a very protein centric diet if I hope to do anything with myself in any given day. So why, you know, just checking in and, and seeing, are these layers really working for me? And is this process serving me or am I just, you know, on this hamster wheel because I think I should be. I think the same is true for me. I want to add to this that I think that when I see people learn how to butcher, they really focus on learning how to make sure that they have ribeyes or strips or whatever it is, you know, whatever we've been told is the good stuff. And they ignore how they eat meat. And I realized this, you know, I've been cutting for retail butcher shops for a decade. And my husband and I put a steer down in our kitchen table here, here on our farm. And I was like, oh, I can just cut this the way I like to eat this. I, I don't have to be beholden to, to society's idea of what is a good cut. And I never eat strip steaks. I never eat ribeyes. I don't want them. I don't crave them. And so why am I making those cuts something I don't want them to be? They can be a roast for me. Or more often than not, they're often trade for us. They just kind of go in like the trade because we won't eat them. But it's so true to really get to the core of why am I doing this? What do I want out of this? And to take inventory. How do I cook? How do I eat? How do I enjoy? Yeah. Yeah. We just, we had butchered or not butchered. We had, uh, yeah, butchered. We didn't slaughter butchered. Could cut that part out. We, (laughs) (laughs) we had just, we had just broken down a half a pig a couple, maybe two months ago. And the pigs that we hit, we do this every year, usually twice a year, we deal with a half a pig and every year we cut chops and every year chops are the last thing left in the bottom of the freezer. We're just like not pork chop people. And me and my husband were really busy during the farm season. We have a lot that we're doing and sometimes, you know, something like a roast isn't going to work into our summer, our summer cooking rhythm. We're like, let's grind this entire pig. Like gone is the Copa. And like the people, the person who was helping us along with this process was horrified. You know, she's like the Copa, you're going to grind the Copa. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. We're grinding the Copa. like yeah. we want ground meat. That is, yeah. like, <laughs> that that's is what we want. Yes. That's it's, fast. It's delicious. You can, you know, make it whatever percent you want. You can put in all the weird bits. It's like, we want ground meat. We're grinding this whole pig. It was the best decision I've ever made. I don't think I'll, I would never willingly cut up. I'm not going to say never. I don't see myself willingly cutting pork chops for myself for a very long time. I'd rather just grind it and have the bones for stock. Beautiful. I think that's fantastic. I wish more people would do that. Yeah. Like, you should cut and preserve and cook the way that you like to eat, the yes. way that it gives you joy. If that means grinding something that somebody else sees as precious, do it. Yes. 
I think something else that's really special about that is, you know, I think that the, the entry barrier is less when you're, when you really realize like, okay, I'm cutting this for me, nobody else. So all of a sudden my fears around butchery and having everything look just like they would if I, you know, looked up a picture of what does a pork loin look like? It just changes because it's all of a sudden it's not, it's not about anybody else anymore. It's not about anybody's, you know, notions of what you should get out of the pig. It's about you in your kitchen. And you're not going to mind if it's like a little hamburger on the side. It's for you. Just try it, you know? And I think a lot of people are afraid of butchery because they, they're scared that you're going to mess it up. And you can't mess it up after the you animal You can't mess dead. it up. It's you dead. can't mess it up. You you, right. you will find a way to cook it and eat it. Therefore, it cannot be messed up. Yes. Yeah. It's not possible. And that's why I really think that anybody that is holding a knife in front of a carcass with a little bit of reverence is a butcher. It's not about fine cutting and all of these perfect everything. It's about, it's about joy and it's about enjoying the meat and it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be precious. It doesn't have to be fussy. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're giving that same permission for canning, for growing, for everything. We've done that with our growing season. Why are we growing that? We don't eat it. Right. Right. (laughs) I know. And like the same thing could be said of a market grower. You know, why am I spending, I have finite space. Why am I spending all of this time growing broccoli? is the first thing that I think of. We don't grow broccoli here anymore. And I probably will never grow broccoli for market. It's not to me when I think about broccoli and I think about the space and time and energy that I have, it just doesn't make sense. And there's plenty of other farmers with much more land and different margins where, you know what, broccoli works for them and I will go buy their broccoli and be happy, but yes, (laughs) it doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. We don't grow many vegetables. Like we just really, we focus on like, like things that we eat a lot of that we can grow easily. So we grow a ton of squash because we love squash both summer and winter. And it's not very time intensive for us. Yeah. Carrots in my rocky soil are really difficult and they just take too much. And so I'll, I'll trade or buy carrots from friends. Making life a little bit easier, I think is very underrated. I agree. I think a lot of people too, who, who come to the world of homesteading or farming, they really want to do everything. And I've been there. So I understand wanting to being, you know, fresh and wanting to do absolutely everything. And it's, it feels so good to let some of that go, you know, and to do what you really like to do and to do it really well, I think is so much it's it's so much more nourishing than struggling to do everything yourself. It really is. And yeah. it gives you more pleasure. And I wonder, I've been thinking about it, and I'm wondering if now is the time to start talking about the discipline pleasure axis. I want to make sure we haven't missed any like little treats in there that you want to tease out before no. we get to it. Yeah, but, let's go ahead. <laughs> because I think that a lot of discipline and pleasure has been nested in this conversation without maybe being identified. But this was the moment for me where I had to talk to you and I had to talk to you like right now. And you had done, (laughs) you had done this series 
you know, you and I had sent like a couple of messages back and forth kind of casually. And you did this series on the discipline, pleasure axis and of your view of discipline. And it's something that I was really carrying with me towards the end of 2022 and into this year has been looking at how I consider discipline. And so when you started talking about this, I just had to talk to you now. And I think we sent (laughs) probably hours of voice notes back and forth after that. Um, And so I want to bring this picture in because I think we've talked about throughout your journey, there are so many elements of different varieties of discipline and of pleasure and of the way that they interact and intersect. And so I'd love for you to give us a little overview of this and then maybe we can dive into some definitions and all of these different things that we've talked about. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So you had mentioned, you know, your word of the year and having different words of the year. And I didn't really realize that discipline was my word of the year until I saw the graphic that I shared on Instagram, which was literally the words discipline running one way and pleasure running through them. And it just was such an aha moment for me because it it put into a visual, it was a visual perspective of something that I had been thinking about and kind of scared to talk about online. Um, I think discipline, people make fun of discipline. One, I think that a lot of people poke fun at people who are trying to hone their own discipline. And then I think that we all are so traumatized around what discipline is because we were disciplined as youth or we have been disciplined as adults. And our only understanding of the word discipline is through the lens of, of punishment and restriction. And neither of those things have anything to do with the discipline that I'm talking about. And I I just want to make that so clear because I think we can project a lot of, of our trauma around discipline onto moving into it. So I had been thinking a lot about discipline ever since you know, when I, when I started farming, I knew that I wanted to have a farm and I knew that, you know, it was great to be working for all these brilliant farmers and learning all these things, but I wanted to do it myself. And I was so hopeless, you know, farmers on working on a vegetable field crew is a really difficult way to try and like save money to buy a farm. It's a really difficult way to pay your rent or to make, make your, you know, to make ends meet in the bare minimum. So I sort of had this like misery over my head until, until I was able to secure a job that I feel really, really lucky to have. And within that, there are decisions that I've had to make around discipline. One, how do I spend my time and my, my, you know, now that I have a job that demands a lot of me, how do I spend my time so that it is in service to my goals? And two, how do I treat my finances? And, you know, I by no means make tons and tons of money, you know? So like, how do I treat the small income stream that I have to be in service to my goals? And I keep, and another thing is how do I treat my body and myself? So that is, it is in service to my goals so that all of these things can, can mix and coalesce together to create what I want and what I wanted was, and what I still want is, is to be farming with my husband and living a peaceful life. You know, that's, that's really what I want. 
And so I really had to, to dig really deep and, and make friends with discipline and discipline was something that I had also experienced through kind of a punitive lens of of punishment and restriction. And I just realized it didn't have to be that way. And when I realized that all this magic started happening, you know, I felt really aligned with my goals and what I was doing on a day-to-day basis to get there. I felt like doors started opening up for me because of decisions that I was making with discipline and center. I felt a lot of pleasure, right? Like we start, we start meeting these goals and seeing traction happen in our lives. And Oh my God, these things that I'm trying so hard to do are happening. That feels so good. I don't want to stop. I never want to stop, you know? And like, it feels free and I feel strong and I feel like I'm respecting myself and the people around me. And like, to think that I only saw discipline as, as being yelled at as a kid or being grounded or having, you know, something taken away from me in this feeling of ultimately feeling very unfree and disentangling that. Oh my God. (laughs) So I just sort of had this like journey with it in that way. I want to pause here and I actually, I want to unpack the definition of discipline because this is, this is so, this has been so important on the podcast for me to look up words and to come back to their actual definitions. I think so often we use words as they've sort of come to mean, and sometimes looking them up can just open up a word in a whole new way. And so has a couple of different definitions that are very different from one another. And one is control gained by enforcing obedience or order. Second, orderly or prescribed conduct or pattern of behavior. Another is self-control or punishment, training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character of. But then there's also a field of study or a rule or system of rules governing conduct or activity. And I love this because as we started to boil this down together over voice notes, there's kind of two main definitions. There's discipline as a punishment, as this sort of punitive measure that I think we're most familiar with receiving, or in my case, not receiving at all in childhood. And then there's also discipline as a practice. And what you said, and I loved this, is something that we do out of deep love for that practice, that medium, or ourselves. And it is also the root word is disciple, which is to be a pupil, to be a student. They're so different from one another. (laughs) They're so different. So different. And we have just glommed on to, for whatever reason, we have glommed on, I think, collectively to discipline as punishment or, or being synonymous with restriction. And like through those definitions, we can truly see that they're not synonymous at all. Really? I mean, each one, each one is its own thing. And I think it's up to us to decide which one we want to identify with and what we want to project from our own, you know, internal world onto those words. Um, and I'm choosing, I'm choosing the, the, the one that makes me feel free. That's, Me too. that's so important. Me too. Yeah. And I think that's a really important distinction too, because discipline has allowed me to feel more free. Like I find freedom in discipline. They're not mutually exclusive. One actually leads into the other. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. And I think a, a, a really, a really easy touch point for folks would be, you know, what foods make you feel good? You know, we have so much messaging around like restrictive diets and, you know, like just very restrictive dietary patterns. And, and, you know, for me, I, I came into like this whole quote unquote health food journey of mine by eliminating a lot of things that don't make me feel good. And then there came a point many years down the road where I had to sit and think to myself, am I just restricting myself? Am I, or am I able to like start to, I'm noticing healing. I'm noticing things are getting better. Maybe it's time that I can start to reincorporate some of the things that you know, I took away to see how they work. And lo and behold, a lot of things worked like dairy. I didn't have dairy for four years. And at that point I could have decided, all right, well, I'm really afraid of dairy and I don't want it to, you know, negatively impact me again. So I'm just not going to eat it, even though I know I can digest it now. And that to me looks like restriction, but you know, trying gluten again and noticing, Oh boy, like, Oh, 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 that does not work for me. That's discipline, right? Like my favorite food in the world is a croissant, butter, flour. Obviously. It's perfect. perfect, It's the perfect food. Like if I want to perform my best and if I want to be able to continue down a path where I feel freedom in my body, that doesn't work for me right now. And I need, and that's not restriction, right? That's like, that's respect. And there is such a difference. Yes. And there's a difference too, in that, that freedom comes with feeling good the the next day, whatever that refractory period is between you and the food that doesn't get along with your body is that there is freedom that when I don't eat nightshades are a big one for me, gluten, um, cow dairy specifically, even A2A2 doesn't matter. Dairy from cows doesn't work. I have freedom in that next day and that I'm not bloated or achy or foggy or my sleep is disrupted, right? Whatever that symptom is that correlates with that food, I have the freedom to feel good. Yeah. And you can, you can then take your body that feels good and go forth into the world and whatever it is that your goal is and that, you know, that sweet end point, like you're, you can get there that way. And that's freedom, right? Like that's yes. so, it's so good. It's so good to know, to know that there is a difference and to know, to be able to sit down and do that kind of inventory style process with yourself and think about, is this restriction? Is this discipline? Is this an open door? Is this a closed door? Which one do I want to walk through? Do you think there's a way to take inventory? You know, at the top of this, you kind of talked about discipline for your body. And I'm, you know, that's food, that's exercise too, probably discipline for your finances, you know, discipline that are in service to goals, which is feeding both of those things. But there's sort of these categories. And I wonder what would happen if we sat down and we really did an inventory of where am I with discipline? What goals do I want? And what actions are most in service to reaching those goals and finding that pleasure of reaching those goals in my, in my body. And even if you're, if your goal for your body is just to feel good, like not an aesthetic goal, just right. a feel good goal. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, 
I'm not a big journaler. I would love to be able to sit here and be like, I journal all the time. It's the best. I love it, but I'm not that girl. And I, I sometimes I wish I am, but I'm definitely like more of a cerebral kind of inventory person. But I think, I think for anybody who maybe wants to hone discipline, there is, you know, you could maybe make some columns and think about it. Like I have in my notes right now, I have a word that says discipline and I have a word that says restriction and all sorts of things underneath it. Just like quick scratch notes. I also think one of the best ways to hone your discipline is to start a garden because nobody's going to make food happen for you, but you. And I think maybe a lot of like growers who would listen to this would maybe chuckle to themselves at this conversation. And because growing takes so much discipline, you know, to have, to plant, to go out, physically take your body out on outside into maybe not great conditions. It could be raining. It could be cold. It could be blazing hot and to like go forth and do what you need to do during the day. And it might not feel great. You know, there's a lot of people who think farming is fun every day and it's not, but if you would like to hone your discipline, I think like grow, trying to grow some food would be a really good place to start. I ooh. <laughs> um, I feel a little called out because I'm the worst. No. Uh, no, 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 no. I like this. I like this as an analogy because I find it very hard to harness the discipline to tend a vegetable garden. I love raising meat because I do not have to weed it. Uh, <laughs> And while it requires of me an act of going out when, when it's rainy, when it's cold, when it's hot, when, when I don't want to, it has a lot of things that I like doing more like hugging a goat when it's cold and sort of burying my face in it. And I love this because I think that there are acts that help us hone that muscle. And I think that discipline is a muscle that we kind of begin to build and then it translates in other spaces of our life. Yeah. And I just want to affirm for you, I can see you in the winter fixing your fences outside. You know, if an animal has maybe gotten out. Oh yeah. Nobody wants to do that. No, you know, I mean, maybe you did want to do that in that moment, but I think that there is also a certain level of like, okay, there's this self-talk of Kate, your animals will escape or be in harm's way. If we do not fix the fence, I need to go out in the cold in the winter in New York and fix the fence. Like that's a decision that you have to make when you become a grower. And when you, when you take animals under your care, that you're going to be disciplined enough to, especially with animals, especially with animals, you know, that you're going to be disciplined enough to have them have their needs met and, you know, have enough food, water, and safety. Yes. I think growers have more discipline in that (laughs) regard. But I think that either way, I think having that entry point, that gateway into a practice, because it becomes like, that is where discipline becomes a practice. Like it is the practice of tending animals. It is the practice of growing food. It is the practice of lifting weights or the practice of keeping a balanced book or, you know, accounting for yourself. And 
I pulled a quote for this from Ryan Holiday, and he says, in fact, we might say that progress and practice are synonyms. You can't have the former without the latter, and the latter is worthless without the former. And so it is this act of getting into that practice, which I think is also in some ways akin to ritual. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. That allows us to begin to build that muscle. Yeah. I I love that you tied ritual into it because, you know, when you really step away, the whole thing is a ritual, this whole living with intention and living from a place and living at home in yourself and tying everything that we have been talking about together is the ritual, right? Maybe it just never ends when you're really living from the core of who you are in service to who you want to be and what you want to bring into the world. Is that not a prayer, right? Like every day, it's just this walking prayer. And I think that that is such a beautiful thing to give to yourself and to give to those around you. It's just, it's just a good it's a good way to be. I think that that's the ritual. I love Alter that. cloth aside. I think that was perfectly said. I want to make sure we touch pleasure in this too. And not just, and I think you and I were both really quick to hop into like the discipline is pleasure. Like there's all this pleasure to be found in discipline. And I think that, I think that is true. And I, I pulled a quote that I want to use here from Epicurus, who was the philosopher that was, that loved food, um, in ancient Greece. And he said, by pleasure, we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the mind. It is not an unbroken succession of drinking bouts and of merrymaking, not the satisfaction of lusts, not the enjoyment of the fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table, which produce a pleasant life. It is sober reasoning, searching out the motives of every choice and avoidance and banishing those beliefs through which the greatest disturbances take possession of the soul. And I think I deeply connect to pleasure at the level of that quote. And I think it's important that pleasure doesn't always need to be earned. And for me, that has been a really big learning experience that I don't have to, I don't have to earn pleasure at every point. And I think that's something that was set up for me, at least in my childhood. And then something I perpetuated in adulthood. And I think it serves me in some ways. And I want to be able to just enjoy without impetus, without earning. Yeah. You know, I think about how as kids, you know, we're rewarded for doing something good with like a little treat or even as adults, you know, we have like our, our little treat that's at the end of, of this like grueling in the muck for something. And I just, and I struggle with this. I really do. I'm not there in thinking that I deserve pleasure at all times. I know in my intellectual brain that I do, but emotionally, sometimes that is still challenging for me to just receive without feeling like I quote unquote earned it. So that's, that's something that I know that I'm still working on. And I think, I think I can make a lot of sense out of, you know, getting, getting to pleasure from discipline. And I still feel guilty on the days where I rest and I don't want to feel that way. And I think it's okay to say that and to know that that's, you know, something that I'm striving for is 
okay, I, I'm going to take a day off of work and I'm going to be okay with it. And I'm going to not lift weights today. And I'm going to not answer any phone calls and I'm just going to enjoy it. I get a little bit panicky. I feel a little bit I almost feel like everything is going to like collapse around me if I don't vacuum the floor or something. (laughs) So I'm still, I'm still really trying to get there. I really am. And I really appreciate that quote that you read. I think that that was so beautiful and I would like to print it out on my wall so I can remind (laughs) myself that it's okay, girl, sit down. (laughs) Yeah. I think From years of battling really intense fatigue, one of the things that I have begun to learn, I'm not battling it as much anymore, but, but I am still learning it because rest is really hard for me too, that my entry point is that sometimes rest is in service to my greater goals. It is in service to nourishing my body and what it needs in those moments to take a rest day from lifting weights or to take a nap when it is calling (laughs) from your body. Like I need this nap and to take that rest. Then with the rest of my day, I am able to be more present, more joyful, and usually more in service to my goals, whatever that is during that day. And so rest has this really important gift to give of, of that same service that discipline or productivity or, you know, whatever word it is. And that helps me not get stuck in the, in the guilt of rest. I don't know. I'm still working on this one too, but I thought I'd share that because I appreciate it. I do. I do. And I know, you know, it's like, there's, there's things that we know, and then there's things that we know that are just so difficult sometimes to put into action, especially, and I want to touch on something that you were talking about in your solo podcast that I really loved, you know, this, that pendulum, that extreme pendulum that our culture swings in between of like, okay, this is like rest era and we are laying down forever and we are never coming <laughs> back up and like figs are going to fall into our mouth from yes. the sky and like, it's always the perfect temperature and you never have to do anything thing versus like extreme hustle grind culture. And I'm trying so hard to find that place where it is just in the center where I can still be productive and do all of these things that are in service to my future and to myself now, and also lay down and eat the figs. Um, (laughs) but I think there's this shame, right? We talked about some of the shame that's in the social media culture around discipline. I think there's a lot of shame in wanting to be productive in wanting to reach goals in hustling to do so, which is sometimes just what's necessary because that pendulum has swung from like, okay, we're all hustle culture and like bosses and whatever (laughs) into (laughs) we're laying on the couch. We're never getting back up. If you're not resting, you're doing it wrong. You got to (laughs) rest. And And I noticed that I was, as I was consuming social media, like taking in some of that messaging and feeling ashamed about my desire to hustle towards goals and dreams that I have that require of me 
to work and to, and to find joy in that work that I'm doing that is in service to these big dreams and goals that I have. And how do I do that? Again, not hustling all the time. Like I want there to be balance, but there is going to be a sort of nice bell curve in the middle, right? There, there are these extremes. We're just resting. We're only <laughs> hustling. But sometimes life is going to tend a little bit more towards the hustle. Yeah. I think especially, you know, going back to being a grower and having you know, wanting to build systems, wanting to build a comfortable place to lay your head, wanting to do all of these things. And I know you can relate to this, but in my own life of like, if I want to go work on my own farm, not, you know, my nine to five farm job, but my own farm, I have to get in the, in the car and like haul booty two hours in each direction. And, you know, before that there's all this like preparing and all of these things we need to bring in. It's just a lot. And, the perfect time to do all of that is the winter, you know, like all of these infrastructure projects, they happen in the winter. And the winter is this time where we're sort of memed into like it's rest time. And sometimes it just doesn't align and that's okay. And the pace is somewhat slower in some way, but again, like nobody's going to make these things happen for us, except for us and the pace in which we choose to do that is so it's uniquely our own and within our own, you know, comfort level and not what social media or rest culture or, you know, slow girl culture is saying, which it's so crazy. There's like these whole like sub sub, um, cultures of rest and slow and all of these. It's like such a wild world. Like we can't just have both and just be human. You know, we have to like be one of the other. Yeah. Um, we have to fall into a camp. Yes. We have to fall into a camp and it's just, life is not, you don't, you don't always get to fall into one camp. Yeah. (laughs) Just got to do it. We've talked so much about goals and being in service and you just mentioned this really big goal and this really big dream that you're building with your husband of Northwoods farm and skill and what you're building. Do you want to talk about that more and talk about like what it's meant to buy land and to begin to prepare (laughs) land to eventually be used and homes and those pieces? Because I think that, I think what you're building is really beautiful. And I think that the way that you are approaching it is taking a lot of hustle, a lot of work, a lot of discipline, and it's so exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Northwoods Farm and Skill is my husband and I's farm, future farm. It's a farm right now, but you know, we're building it. So we hope to, or we hope really with the essence of this farm is to be a place where we're not only growing provisions for our community, but we're also growing skills within our community. And that's not to say that we want to be the teachers of everything. Um, I think places where you go, where there's one person teaching everything is a little bit suspect. Um, (laughs) I just, you know, I think 
In our community in Michigan, especially in the area where Northwoods Farm and Skill is, there is a sore need for a place to be a host space for people to come together and learn. We have one really amazing folk school in Southeast Michigan and not a lot of opportunity in our area where our farm is. So we want to be a space for not only people who are interested in learning skills, but for educators to come and share their skills. So butchers, people like you and your husband, woodworkers, hunters, people who are teaching like salt of the earth skills that, you know, are agrarian based, craft based, nutrition based. And we want to have a place where they can, where, you know, like a launch pad for them to be able to share what is so important to them. So we are working on that. We, we have a lot of infrastructure building to do. So as well as, you know, growing food to sell for market. And then we also would like to build a small little A-frame cabin for rentals so that, you know, educators have places to stay if this is an overnight class that they're teaching or, you know, if people want to rent it for like a farm stay experience. Um, We'd also like to be able to offer that. So it's a big dream and it's... (laughs) It's sort of a slow burn and we are, you know, we're both, my husband and I work full time for other farms. So we're, we're limited in how much on the ground time we can really put into the, into the space in any given week. So typically we work for, you know, we do our Monday through Friday at the farm and then we do our weekend at the other farm and we're just so excited and we just believe in it so much. I believe in educational farming ventures so much. That's what I do now as, you know, a farm manager of a demonstration farm. I see every single day how people are impacted when they come into a farm from not a farming background and how their body just relaxes and they're at ease and they have like this ability to just interact with the space that is so natural and so inaccessible for so many people. So that's really what I want for people when they come to Northwoods. I love that. Do you think some of that desire to create that space comes from wishing that you had had that space and that access? Yeah, I do. I do. And you know, I don't think that we're necessarily going to be catering to children as much or even necessarily families. It's, it's, I'm really interested in adult education, but the reason that I'm involved in educational farming is because I believe that farming is a tool to heal. So I want to give that to people. I want to, I want to make a space for that. I agree. I think it's a a true tool of healing. And I think that connection heals us. And I think if we can help people connect to whatever it is, to butchery, to gathering, to farming, to whatever it is, that that connection opens so many doors for what comes next. It does. And, you know, I don't know... I'd love to say my dream launch date, but I am scared too because <laughs> I don't, it's, 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 it's expensive. Honestly, starting a farm and maintaining a farm is extremely expensive. Extremely and expensive. I just, I have so much empathy and compassion for people who are just starting and they are just so bewildered on how do I even start? I have a lot of people who ask me a lot. They're like, how do I even start? And oh, gosh, 
you know, if I wasn't in my very early twenties and able to just like hop around from farm to farm and learn, I didn't know about folk schools. I didn't know about skills schools. I didn't. And if I knew I would have to drive two hours to get to one. So I think that the more places where we can make even just, you know, eight hour experiences accessible and an option, it would be amazing. There could be something like that in every neighborhood and I would celebrate it. I love that. And I love the celebration of skills because I think it's amazing how much honing a skill can give you a sense of purpose. And again, that honing that practice is a sense of discipline. Yeah. And empowerment. And you feel like, Oh my gosh, I'm capable. I can, Mm -hmm. I can do this. I can do something. And that is like a confidence booster. It makes you happy. It makes you feel like you have something to offer to people. And like, that's what humans want, right? Like we want to be able to exchange with others in a positive way. Yes. I think we want to exchange skills and connection and service and all, all of those things. Yeah. Um, I didn't ask you how much time you have. Do you have a little bit more time? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cause do you, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay, no, I have, I always kind of schedule all day. I don't really give myself in times on podcasts. There's something we haven't touched on that I really wanted to at least touch on, which is teeth and health, especially we bonded over this. So we've both had, I, I call it an oral journey. <laughs> I'm on an oral journey And I can't believe how much it has brought up for me emotionally, that there is a lot tied to my mouth. And I think too, in doing the podcast and, and using my voice, it has sort of compounded as the mouth being this place where voice is transmitted and all of these connections to ways in which hmm, I felt boxed in to get back to that, like that idea. So do you want to share a little bit about like what's going on in your mouth? So what's going on in your mouth? So what's going on in your mouth? Tell us us about your mouth because you had quite a journey. I did. Yeah. The long and short of it is, you know, I, I won't get into every gruesome detail, but I have had this ongoing jaw infection for over five years. And the way in which it came about was so excruciating. It came out of nowhere. It blindsided me. It came at a time when I was transitioning into my job now, which was extremely stressful. I had, I was just, it was really hard. And I started grinding my teeth, which I still do to this day. And I can hear it at night and so can my husband. Um, so within all of that and the tension in my jaw, I developed an infection, which was addressed through a root canal. Um, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners and you are, are maybe hip to the risks and dangers of root canals, which I'm fully convinced of now that I've gone through it firsthand, but they addressed, my dentist addressed the pain, the excruciating pain that I was in by just taking out the nerve and killing my tooth. So I couldn't feel it anymore, which led me to think that I was better. And lo and behold, it was a failed root canal that developed its own infection and required an extraction. And have you had a tooth pulled? Oh yeah. Many. That's part of my oral journey is that I am missing six adult teeth and not including wisdom teeth. So 10 with wisdom teeth. And did you notice as well that after that tooth was extracted and you had a hole open in your mouth, this purge of energy, at least that's what I felt. I felt like 
so many rotten blockages that I had that were just so synonymous with like this rotten dead tooth in my mouth. And then having this like hole ripped open that like all of that could just like pour out of me in this insane way. I just felt like I can let go now. I can let go of so much ick and junk And I think, you know, putting that together mentally with like the ick and junk of this physical dead tooth coming out, it was so healing, but that it wasn't the end of the journey because I still had that deep jaw infection that I still couldn't feel. And I was wondering, you know, why am I not getting better? Why do I feel it wasn't pain? It was sort of like this throbby, pulsy, weird, you know, when you have an infection, it's like, well, well, that feeling. And so you know, I had to go back in and have more of the tooth that they had left in there come out and more addressing of this infection. And it was so energetically cleansing. I don't love the word cleanse, but just like getting this dead thing out felt so good. (laughs) So they, they pulled completely everything out and then went back and pulled what they had left in. I'm curious how you navigated that with your, like your dentist, like something is wrong. I need you to look at this again. Mm -hmm. Um, and then did they replace it with anything? So I thought that everything had been pulled out and I was sort of feeling like maybe, I don't know. I feel intuitively like something's not right. And so I went in for like a routine x-ray checkup with my regular dentist just for a cleaning. And they were like, Oh, that's so interesting. You have something in your gums. And I was like, that's impossible. They just pulled it out and they said, Oh no, no, no. There's a root tip in there. And Somehow, and you know, when I woke up from the extraction because I opted to be knocked out, so I didn't, I would have fought the dentist um, if I didn't, <laughs> didn't knock me out. I would have had my hands on his hands. Um, yeah. I looked at the tooth. I wanted it back. You know, I wanted to see it, and mm-hmm. it was missing a root, and he had ensured me that they took it out, and it didn't come out. So I had to go back in for another That's procedure. Yeah. It was very frustrating. And, you know, luckily they covered it, but uh, the dentist just was, he, I don't like him. And it's not just that he's a dentist that I don't like him. He just, he gave me a bad feeling and I have not replaced my tooth with anything. And I, I won't, you know, much to both the oral surgeon and my dentist's request to, to put something in, you know, they think that my teeth will shift. And at this point, I just do not care. That is, you know, society likes to put a lot of impressions on not having a tooth, right? It's like, it's not seen as something that is, you know, good or acceptable. And I just don't care because what's not good and what's not acceptable to me is having something dead or, you know, inert matter in my mouth that is just going to be attacked by my body. Yeah. By your immune system. Yes. Yes. There's a great book I'll include in this about root canals. Like there's, there's a book about some of the harms that can come from root canals and they are, I I don't have any, but they, yeah, I have heard and I avoided one like narrowly and I had to fight for them to, I had this, I went to this biological dentist and he was like, I'm going to try to fill it with biocompatible materials. He was like, I'm going to try to fill it. And we went through this whole process instead. And I had to look, he was the third dentist that I saw before anybody would do that. 
And so it's, and it's hard, it's hard to fight for, I know that a lot of my journey has been cause I'm cracking all of these teeth down here because of a crossbite and the way that they pulled all of these adult teeth from the top of my mouth. And so now the bottom and the top don't line up. And so the pressure points that they're hitting are kind of cracking these teeth and it, it's hard to advocate for yourself and say, I don't think this is what's happening because I saw my dentist and he was like, well, I think you're grinding your teeth. And I was like, I'm not grinding my teeth. And he was like, well, I think then it's sleep apnea. And we went through all these things and he's like, oh, okay, you're actually not doing this. We did this whole sleep study. And he finally believed me and he was like, well, I don't really know what it is or what to do. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. My teeth are literally flaking away. I can't eat a carrot raw because oh it just God. flakes teeth away. Oh so gosh. something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to advocate for yourself. And I think it's also, it's interesting how much is tied up in our mouths. Like you said, that whole evacuation of bad energy. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to hear from you, you know, with, with using your voice and speaking on the podcast and having that all going on with what you're dealing with, with dental work. I want to hear about that. I had a lot of dental work done as a kid. Like my oral journey is long. I had my gums reconstructed when I was 13 because they were receding so badly at 13 that they skinned my entire palate. So when they reconstruct, they skin your palate and then they pull away your existing gum tissue and they pack the palate skin in and like pull the old gums up and over it, which is a brutal, it, I mean, it was a very brutal surgery and I had all of these teeth pulled and I had braces for, I think six years. And at the end of it, they were like, the braces didn't work. We want to break your jaw instead. At which point my mother was like, we're not doing this. We're just done. And so fast forward to here. And I've had like a lot of dental, like kind of trauma around my mouth, just like a lot of really difficult situations and a lot of pain. And so when this started happening, I went into a freeze. Well, I don't really want, I don't really want to deal with it. I kind of mentioned it at a dental appointment and they dismissed it. So I dismissed it and I noticed it bring up that desire to avoid in myself. And one of the things that I had been avoiding was launching this podcast. It had been my goal and my dream for five years. And here were like these two, these two things that I was avoiding. And then when I went and I visited with a bunch of dentists to find a way to treat this, or at least try to treat it. And I noticed that when I started doing it, I had already started the podcast and starting the podcast was a big relief for me. I healed a lot of things that I had been working on. I think just by doing the thing that was in my heart, (laughs) it was just so important to me. And then I started expanding my palate. So my, my palate is really tiny because they took out all of these adult teeth. And so my, the top of my mouth just kind of shrunk. And now my, I can't even fit like an iced teaspoon on the top of my mouth. It's just so small. And so there's literally this act of expansion, which is fascinating to feel both shrinking and expansion mirrored to me in a dental and life journey. But it's fraught too. I mean, I think that one of the things I've thought about is that 
our mouth is kind of, it's the acoustics. It's the cathedral for, it's the temple for our voice. Like it's all, it's this space where sound resonates from and it's tied to our voice and us saying what we need to say in the world and asking for what we need in the world and receiving too. It is where we receive nourishment. That's a lot for one little space. Mm. And the expansion that's happening now with the work that you're doing, coupled with the expansion of you taking the podcast forward and using your voice and receiving all of like the good stuff back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's really, it's really incredible. It's it's really, and it's a journey and it, it sucks sometimes. Like it's, oh yeah. (laughs) Oral stuff is tough. It's also really expensive. Oh my goodness. It's so expensive that my husband's always, he says, teeth are bones for rich people. He's had like his whole front palate redone. Cause he had a horrible bike accident and like the reconstruction of all of his teeth. I mean, it's teeth should not be bones for rich people. <laughs> the teeth should just be something that we we get the pleasure of having and, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and taking care of. Yes. 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 Oh my goodness. Bones for rich people. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to carry that with me. That yeah. was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing about that. I really wanted to touch on that because yeah. I think that it's good for people to hear these stories. So I think Absolutely. other people are going and- through teeth stuff, oral journeys. They are. And you know, I know you've shared about it on your Instagram. Did you just get like, yes, that like hundreds of, yeah, dozens and dozens of messages. What are you doing? How can, you know, what are you, have have you learned? I've done this too. Here's my advice. I have never, it was like a Pandora's box. I had no idea when I started posting about this root canal, how many people would come out of the woodwork and who have, I mean, somebody told me that a dentist had enclosed the piece of their dental instrument in their jaw and they had to have it removed. I mean, just like stories that I would have never dreamed of. So I think we're definitely all in this horribly vulnerable dental boat together and just trying to navigate it. I also have... I have a little bit of a question of why this is all happening now. And I mean, like through Weston A. Price lens, right? Like if you're familiar with Weston A. Price's work, he went through and he noticed that in cultures that were really healthy and eating these ancestral foods that were really based in, in meat and dairy and nutrient rich things had beautiful, straight white teeth and really wide, beautiful arched palates. And so I think our mouths are deeply connected to our food over generations, right? That this isn't like, this isn't just what we ate in childhood. This is also what our parents ate and our grandparents ate and really having access to that. And the, the orthodontic industry is kind of archaic. Like I think that in a hundred years, we will look back at some of the ways that we manipulated teeth and be horrified. I mean, having braces for years is horrifying. Yeah. And (laughs) and the need for it, I mean, they, like, they narrowed my palate on, they took away six teeth and narrowed my palate while they were expanding it. I had an expander as a kid, but then they pulled all these teeth 
and then they put braces on it to make it smaller. And then they told me that they needed to break my jaw to make it bigger again. And so, (laughs) and now they tell you that you can't make your palate wider in adulthood, which has been shown James Nestor's book breath is a really good basis point for this, but isn't true. And so I think that there's just a lot of old ways of thinking in both dentistry and orthodontics that will change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, in the quicker we address our nutritional needs and our mineral needs, the better. Um, when yeah. I was a vegetarian, I was a vegetarian for four years. And within that time, my teeth turned to mush. I mean, I just like the cavities that I had to have and the yellowing even it just, it was so quick that, you know, people there's, I have not had this experience, but people who are in the Weston A. Price community talk about like healing their cavities through dietary changes and recalcifying their teeth, rehardening their enamel and how quickly that can happen. I mean, it's incredible. It's not a panacea for obviously generations of, of nutritional issues and mineral issues, but my God, if we can do any little thing, we should. Yes. And our teeth are living like what you talked about. And I think that this is really important to point out. Our teeth are alive in our bodies. They're not just totally inert and dead and not capable of regeneration. Right. Right. How did you avoid a root canal? I saw a biological dentist in Denver. His name is Dr. John Osberger. He's a, he's a great and very controversial dentist. Uh, and he said that he would drill it out and fill it like a cavity and uses, he uses biocompatible porcelain, which is really cool. And he did that because he was willing to drill that deep. Right. And nobody else was willing to drill that deep and to actually like, while keeping the root alive and intact. Yes. And you've had, has it been successful up until? I think that's a good question. It's sensitive and it's still sensitive. And this is four or five years later, five, five years later. And so it's still sensitive and it still doesn't feel like the rest of my teeth. So I think whether or not that is a successful experiment, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it's still, it's still in my mouth and x-rays still look good and it's still functioning. And I've gained some, it is not as sensitive as it used to be. That's amazing. Yeah. I always wonder to myself, you know, if I had some horrible thing happened and I needed to have a root canal again, what would I do? And I don't, I don't know. I I've really thought about this know. too. I don't know either. I don't know. I think it's tough. Um, I think it's really tough. There are some people that are experimenting with like root canals done better with different materials. And so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of routes of exploration. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope I don't have to, I hope I don't have to go there. I hope you don't either. (laughs) Never again. Well, I've become a, I'm very specific about my oral care these days. You have to be, I mean, gosh, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that that tangent. That was a good tangent. Absolutely. Um, did we miss anything? What did we miss anything big that's in your heart that's burning a hole in your pocket that we didn't touch? Because I think I think there's a lot that we could continue to touch on and maybe maybe you should come back. I mean that's always to. my that's I always my bit. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, just in my notes just was a, like a, a wish, I guess that I would like to 
offer or I don't even know if it's a wish, but just like a little tidbit that I would like to offer out there to anybody who wants to be closer to the land. And that is to not, don't allow the mythology of purity and what our culture thinks purity is to keep you from, from getting to the land and, you know, or eating better or, you know, trying new things. It doesn't have to be perfect. And I think a lot of people put, a lot of people see who are in the city and wanting to live rurally have this lens in which they view like, okay, rural living is like this pure way of life. And that is so disappointing. You know, when you get to the country and you see there's tires everywhere and people are (laughs) burning their siding across the street from you, it's so disappointing. So just get there and get there in the most imperfect way you you perfectly imperfect way that you can just get there. Just try, just don't, I really feel like there's this reaction to a lot of, of our cultural experience right now that, Oh, it's going to be so different once you get to the country. And a lot of those same patterns are still there. You know, people are still people. Garbage is still garbage. Resources are still slim, but at the same time there is abundance and there is, there is so much beauty and you just have to get there and don't, it doesn't have to be perfect. So I just want to offer that as, as just a little nugget for anyone who's looking for one. I'm really, I'm grateful for that nugget because it's true. It's not perfect. And I think so much of this podcast was about letting go of fussiness and preciousness and perfection in favor of the real juicy imperfection that is life. And it makes me curious too. I want to make sure we wrap up because there was so much about dissolving boundaries and coming out of the boxes that we've put ourselves or that society has put us in. And it was just such a gift to explore that, to explore, I don't know, imperfection and how we dissolve boundaries and how we come back to this authenticness of just being ourselves. And so I just want to make sure that we kind of tie that bow on it in that way, because it was, it was really beautiful to hear that theme come up again and again in your words. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It was, it was really special and big for me in a lot of, a lot of ways that I'm sure we'll continue to discuss, but it's been really fun. I hope, I hope you'll come back because I think there's a lot that we could unpack. And so I hope you'll come back and talk with me more. (laughs) Um, tell people where they can find you. Uh, my Instagram handle is Alexandra sky with two E's. That's just my first and middle name. And then we have a farm Instagram as well. Northwoods farm and skill. And hopefully in February, we will be ready to launch our website, which will also have a blog attached to it. And we're really, really excited and excited to be done trying to be website designers. That's really hard. So you can find us there hopefully in February. Amazing. Yes. Uh, I am also a a website. I'm not a website designer, but I also design websites. It's so difficult. Props to anybody who does that. 
I encourage everyone to find you and to follow along with your journey. I cannot wait for more longer format things because your words are so beautiful. And I think anybody who listened to this podcast will already know that, but you just have so much to offer and every delightful picture just kind of jumps out. It feels good enough to eat and to touch and to experience. And Thank you. I just adore you and I <laughs> think you're amazing yes. and I'm in awe of you. Likewise. And I hope you'll come do a butchery class at Northwoods. When, oh, yeah. uh, Absolutely. Yes. Oh, I'm coming. I'm coming to Michigan. <laughs> We're going to keep room for you to stand and stand. I can't wait. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.